you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. If you are new to Covenant Presbyterian, it is typically our practice to preach through books of the Bible, and we've been working our way through this wonderful portion of God's Word, the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be coming to the end of chapter 10, uh, the end of the first half, if you like, of John's Gospel, what is oftentimes referred to as the Book of Signs. Beginning in chapter 11 will be the record of Christ's return to Jerusalem step by step as he returns there to win our salvation on the cross. John chapter 10, I want to read verses 31 through 42. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's holy and inspired, His unerring and life-giving Word. Let's give it our full attention. This is the Word of God. Um, One caveat here, uh, you'll see John once again use the term the Jews. Remember, John was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, the rest of the disciples were Jewish, all of his audience was Jewish. Uh, The Jews is John's shorthand for identifying the Jewish religious authorities, um, experts in the law, Pharisees, Sadducees. Here in particular, we think he's referring and speaking directly to the Pharisees. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, God, we ask uh, your blessing upon us that in hearing your word, we would receive it proclaimed, that we would understand it, And that in understanding it, God, we would be changed by it. Lord, grant belief to the skeptic today. Grant repentance to the sinner. And grant, Lord, by your grace that all of us would look to you in faith today. And this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, these closing words of chapter 10 are the final record from John the Apostle of Jesus' public teaching. Now, he'll continue to instruct his disciples, certainly, but 
This brings an end to his public preaching as we've known it so far. And since chapter 8, verse 12, the focus has been on the controversy surrounding the true identity of Jesus, which is really the most pressing concern for anyone. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who is Jesus? What do you believe? There is no other figure in human history who has cut such a wide and stark gulf. That is, who has caused so many people in so many generations throughout the world to have to face reality, to have to face the meaning of life, to have to consider their sin, to have to consider what lies beyond this life. No other life on this planet has ever in the history of humanity caused such great controversy and at the same time generated so much hope as this person, Jesus Christ. Jesus has increasingly been revealing himself to be just who John the Baptist had declared him to be at his entry into public ministry. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is By his own reckoning and by the observation of so many others, he is the Son of God. By the testimony of the Old Testament Scriptures, he is clearly the divine Messiah, the Son of Man. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this means everything. There is no more pressing issue for your soul than this. Who is Jesus? Everything he has been doing and saying leads up to this point. Either... Jesus must be rejected as a blasphemer or he must be worshipped as Lord. There is no middle ground. There is no third way to be settled upon with a man who claimed to be the one who was with the Father from eternity, who was one with the Father, in whom was the Father, and he himself in the Father, who claimed to be God enfleshed in frail humanity. There's no middle ground you can take with someone like that. And the Apostle John himself, in writing this Gospel account, has left nothing to chance. He's left no room for misunderstanding. From the very beginning of his Gospel account, John has proclaimed Jesus to be God incarnate, that is, God in human flesh. Recall the words, the opening words of this Gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, that's a reference to Jesus, the living and eternal Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now how can you possess simultaneously withness and isness? That's the mystery of the triune God, is it not? He is God, and He is with God. Simultaneously, we are welcomed into the very sort of mystery that we see in the creation account. More on that in just a minute. But John has proclaimed this about Jesus. He has written this about Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Jesus cannot be taken merely as a fine teacher or as a gifted miracle worker alone. He will allow no such middle ground. Either Jesus is God in the flesh one with the Father, or he is a blasphemer. Either he should be rejected entirely or worshipped and followed as Lord. As we saw last week, the events described here occurred, quote, to quote verse 22 that John preached on last week. This happened at the time of the Feast of Dedication. 
Now, the Feast of Dedication came about during the intertestamental period, that is, the period following the end of the final prophets and the advent of Jesus, about a 400-year time span. And know what was happening at that time. It was a time of excruciating silence from God. For some 400 years, God did not speak to his people. It was, among other things, certainly judgment from God after generations of their hard-hearted rebellion. So for some 400 years, he would not send them a prophet. But it was also a time of preparation, a time of making ready the way for the entry of the Messiah. And it was during that intertestamental period where the Feast of Dedication was formed as an important part, a, a sacred time on the Jewish calendar. You see, what had happened was, in the year 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, the emperor of the Greek Empire, who at that time was ruling over Jerusalem, was enraged by something. He was a cruel persecutor of the Jews to begin with. But but we think that probably what had happened is there had been some uprising among some militant Jews in and around Jerusalem. And Antiochus Epiphanes, in punishment for their uprising, sent soldiers into the temple to desecrate the temple. And there he set up an idol to Zeus. He slaughtered pigs. He had pigs slaughtered throughout the temple grounds. It is even written that... he ordered for uh, the priests to be forced to eat the flesh of the slaughtered pigs. This went on for some four years. And it wasn't until Antiochus Epiphanes' death in 164, where a great Jewish leader, Judas Maccabeus, rose up and wrested control of the temple away from the Greeks, even as the Greek empire at that point was in disarray. And on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, which is November, The people cleansed and rededicated the temple to the Lord. And that week was marked for the following generations as the Feast of Dedication, an eight-day celebration, sometimes known as the Festival of Lights or, as we oftentimes hear it referred to, as Hanukkah. And in the midst of that celebration, marking the time when the temple was wrested from the hands of those who defiled it, A time of re-sanctifying and re-dedicating the temple to the worship of the Lord. A time marked by the lighting of candles to cut through the darkness. Right in the middle of it all stands Jesus, proclaiming who he is. He's already compared himself to the temple. Remember when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days? He has said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. And there, in verse 30, as John preached last week, he makes that stunning statement, I and the Father are one. And the cumulative impact of all that Jesus has been saying about himself cannot be missed. And the violent response of the religious authorities demonstrates that they know exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. And so they make a false charge against him. But before they make the false charge, they're ready to kill him on the spot. Do you see there? Verse 31, they take up stones. John tells us they do it again. This isn't their first rodeo. They've tried to kill Jesus before. And by God's providence, he brings him out of that safely because his hour had not yet come, as John has told us. And once again, 
Jesus' hour has not yet come. But you see there what happens. All of this hatred comes to a head and they pick up stones to kill him right there on the spot. And you know, it's worth pointing out for just a second here, at least, that we ought to consider every once in a while the hatred that was directed towards our Lord. Because Christian, you should not expect to be treated better than your master. Isn't that what Jesus told us? Servant isn't greater than his master. If the world hates me, the world is going to hate you. The Apostle Paul warns all those desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus will be praised, right? No. Will be what? Persecuted. And it's happening in the world today. We're shielded from most of it, but it's happening in the world today. It's never really stopped happening. Christian, don't ever expect to be treated better than Jesus. Now, every one of us has been treated much, much better than Jesus was treated. The problem is, I think, is that we have the presumption that we should be treated better than Jesus. We expect to be treated better than Jesus. We demand to be treated better than Jesus. That's the problem. The Apostle Peter writes to his readers, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you. Don't be surprised by it. This is the fate of God's people in so many generations. Now in verse 32... Jesus responds to this quickly organized execution party and has a bit of John's characteristic irony. Don't you like Jesus' response? Okay, fellas, before you stone me, let me just ask you a question. For which one of the good works from my Father are you going to kill me? Is it when I fed the multitude of starving people? Is that why you're going to kill me? Or is it because I've caused lame men to leap? Is that why you're going to kill me? Or is it because I've granted sight to the blind? Is that why you're going to kill me? Just wait till you see me raise Lazarus from the dead. Then you're really going to be mad. There's an irony there, almost a sanctified sarcasm. I always excuse my sarcasm when I see something like that and say, good, it's, it, it glorifies God. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Sarcasm is, is uh, anger in disguise. Is that what they call it? Anyway, people have used that on me. Um, I'm just kidding. No, uh, sanctification, when I do it, is normally sinful, but every once in a while it's nice. None of this is in the notes. I keep digging myself further and further in. I will not be sarcastic ever again, I promise. Then in verse 33, Jesus' would-be executioners answer him. It's not because of your works. And when they're talking about his works... They're talking about his miracles specifically here. It's not because of your miracles that we're going to kill you. It's because of what you've said. You're a blasphemer. That's why we're going to kill you. Notice that Jesus did not earn the hatred of his enemies because of the good works that he performed, but because of the words that he spoke. Had Jesus merely been a miracle worker going about doing good for others, the world would have praised him. But as is always the case, it's not the good works of God that the world hates, it's the good word of God that the world hates. Back in chapter 5, the religious authorities determined to have Jesus put to death, according to John, quote, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. 
The charge of blasphemy against Jesus makes it clear that his message had gotten through. The Pharisees have rightly understood his claims. Remember again those words from verse 30, I and the Father are one. It's almost identical to what he's getting ready to say in verse 38. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is the the theological peak of this section. Jesus is not saying that he has joined his efforts with God or that God has given him special blessings. Jesus is saying very clearly that he is God in the flesh. He is deity personified. Jesus is the eternal Son who dwells in everlasting, unbreakable union with the Father. He is the Word present at creation who simultaneously is God and is with God. Later, Jesus will say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Thomas, at the end of John's account, will make the confession that every Christian must make of Jesus. My Lord and my God. And so the Pharisees actually understand Jesus. They know full well what he is claiming. And they hate him for it. And that's why they're seeking to kill him. All of their hatred, all of their efforts to kill him, are grounded in their sinful, stubborn, unbelieving hearts. Look again at verse 33, because something really unusual happens. There's a stunning admission here. You see it? When they say it's not because of your good works that we're going to stone you, when they say that, they're making an admission that he has already proven himself to be a miracle worker. Like they believe it. They've seen it. They've seen too many of his miracles and have seen the results of his miracles to any longer now deny that he's done it. So for the Pharisees, the debate is not whether Jesus has performed mighty miracles. The debate is where has the power come from? And twice, John has reported that there was a dispute among the Pharisees over that very point, where some of them are saying he has this power as a result of demonic influence, and others are saying, "Mm, I don't know, it looks like good works to me, it looks like the things he's doing, that that power would come from God, even the Pharisees were debating that. Now eventually they kiss and make up, because at the end of the day they still want to kill him. But even the Pharisees had to grapple with the fact that this man who they wanted to be rid of was a bona fide miracle worker. His miracles were so well attested that even they, who at first denied that he was working miracles, have had to admit what has become obvious to everyone around. And what this tells us, among other things, is where unbelief comes from. Unbelief is never ultimately the result of a lack of adequate evidence. The unbelieving heart is the heart that does not want to believe. For for various reasons, it's the heart that has suppressed the truth. It's Romans chapter 1. And this is the condition of the hearts of these religious leaders. They don't want to believe. As much as their eyes have confirmed that this man is a miracle worker, they will not believe what those miracles say about him. Unbelief is deliberately chosen. It's a refusal to look around and see the ocean of evidence that surrounds us. 
It's a refusal to hear our God-haunted conscience. And so what they do is they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. We don't want to talk about your miracles. That has nothing to do with this. Well, it should have everything to do with it. What we want to talk about is that you're a blasphemer. Now again, this is highly ironic because by, de- by, by denying the divine Messiah whom their own scriptures testify to, by denying him, they themselves are the blasphemers. But there's further irony in their words. Do you see, do you see what they say there again in verse 33? That he's blaspheming, Why? Because being a man, you make yourself God. Now what they've done is they've turned the truth on their head at this point. Because in no sense did Jesus make himself anything. He didn't make himself God. Jesus is the eternally existing Son of God. Before Abraham was, Jesus has always and ever shall be the I Am. He and the Father are one. Jesus is the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So no, Jesus did not make himself God. Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God, one with the Father, dwelling in unbreakable oneness of essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. From the creation account in the first chapter of Genesis, we see intimations of the triune nature of God as the Father decrees creation, the Word brings it about, and the Spirit hovers over to order it all. Right there in the opening chapter of the Bible, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is not a New Testament invention. No, Jesus was not making himself God. What we have here is a tragedy of epic proportions because it is what so many people today, to this very day, continue to condemn themselves with. What the Pharisees refused to believe, what their sinful hearts would not comprehend, was that Jesus, the everlasting Son of God, for us and for our salvation, did not make himself God. He is the God who made himself man. And that is the only hope for a sinner's soul. That God would become like us. That he would take on flesh. That he would identify with us in every single way except for sin. And that he, in his perfect, unblemished, holy innocence, would go to the cross and satisfy the demands of God's eternal justice, bearing the wrath of God upon his own shoulders, that we might receive his mercy. That is the beautiful, logical, holy genius of the gospel at work. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that their salvation cried out for that miracle, God become a man. That their sin could only be remedied by the God who took on flesh and became one of us, who would carry our sins and our sorrows and our grief and our shame. Well, now Jesus challenges them. We see that beginning in verse 34. Now, as I was reading this, no doubt a few of you kind of stalled out right there in the middle of the section because of what Jesus says and what he quotes from the Old Testament. Look again, beginning in verse 34. This bears 
a little attention. This requires a little attention on our part. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Your law there, he's referring to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that shorthand for all of what we know as the Old Testament. And then he quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. I said, you are gods. Now it's God speaking to somebody from Psalm 82. Jesus is saying, don't, don't your own scriptures say this? I said, you are gods. And then Jesus p- picks up again. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? What's going on here? Okay. First of all, there's no need to stumble over Jesus' words. There's a lot of things he says that do cause us to stumble. This is really, he's actually making a very simple point. And he's making a point that these first century Hebrews would have understood, I think. Jesus appeals to Psalm 82, which references the not uncommon practice of the day of of referring to certain men in high office as little g, gods. And so Psalm 82, verse 6 says, I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High. Then the very next verse, verse 7, and I'm paraphrasing, but you're still mere men and you're going to die. Okay? So he's not speaking to deities. When the psalmist, speaking on behalf of God, says, I have said that you are gods, he's not speaking of actual deities. There's only one God. He's speaking to men, but he's giving them this title of gods. Well, what's going on? Well, the closest thing I could compare it to is, let's say you travel to England and you are um, invited to some important formal function and... Uh, somebody comes and introduces Lord and Lady so-and-so. That's how they would say it. And it's, it would sound exactly like that. And, uh, but that's the thing. You, 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 you would enter, and you would immediately know that they were not being introduced as a deity by being called Lord, but that that's an honorific title that is held by some people in Great Britain, right? Well, it's a similar principle here. There was not just in Hebrew culture, but in the surrounding cultures. Um, this practice of referring to men in high-placed offices, referring to them as gods. Not to deify them, but used as an honorific title. Okay, that's what's going on in Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, we have two choices, probably. Either, and this is the debate, either the psalmist is applying his words here to the judges of Israel, Men who had received the word of God, acted upon the word of God, were accountable to the word of God, and acted to bring about God's justice in the world. Either it's it's referring to the judges of that time, placing on them that title of honor of little g, gods. Or, and I think this is more likely, Psalm 82 was written for the Sinai generation. That generation that we read about earlier in the service from Exodus 19. That generation who had been delivered out of Egypt and brought to the foot of Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, and where God would once again ratify his covenant with them through the giving of the law. Already, at that point, God had referred to Israel as his son, my son. And there, in that moment, as they receive the word of God, as they bear the the blessing of being God's special holy nation, his kingdom of priests, 
he would give them that honorific title in that moment. And what Jesus is saying, this is his, this is his argument. If God can use the term, quote, gods, in reference to his people, who are still just mere people and they're going to die, how much more appropriate, Jesus is saying, that the Holy One sent from the Father who is one with the Father, would be referred to as the Son of God. That's Jesus' point. He's saying, look, if an honorific title like God can be placed upon mere men, how much more does it apply literally to me? And in the middle of it all, Jesus makes a statement I want to be sure we highlight. Verse 35, and Scripture cannot be broken He's reminding them, as we look into our own scriptures here, as we look to the scriptures, and and, and not just scriptures in large categories, but every single word, and scripture cannot be broken. That word translated broken can also be rendered set aside or proven false. Scripture cannot be set aside, it cannot be proven false. Jesus was wholly committed to the scriptures as the unerring and authoritative word of God. He quoted the Scriptures. He taught the Scriptures. He knew the Scriptures through and through. And he was unerringly obedient to the Scriptures. And here he even appeals to a single word as part of the unbroken Word of God. We call this doctrine verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. If the word plenary is new to you, Um, It probably isn't. If you've been to a conference, you've probably heard or seen the word plenary. Uh, You have the big main sessions. Those are the plenary sessions and the plenary speakers. That's where everybody at the whole conference is gathered, and they're going to hear the main central themes or theme of the conference. And then you go to the smaller rooms. They get the best speakers for the plenary sessions, right? You skip the other ones because they're not as good as speakers. But you go to the plenary sessions. They're going to be good. That's the main theme is presented and defended. But when we talk about plenary inspiration, we mean that all of the themes and all of the doctrine in Scripture are inspired. But more than that, we say that the Scriptures are verbally inspired as well. Not only the themes, but the words themselves are given by God. And that's why we use the word inerrancy to highlight the Bible's trustworthiness. And that's what Jesus here is defending. Well, now he makes that remarkable statement, once again, that, that, that is so directly connected to what he said in verse 30. There in verse 38, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He has just said, if an honorific title of little g, God, can be placed upon the people of God because they've received the word of God and been set apart by God among the nations, then how much more appropriate should I be whom the Father has sent How much more appropriate should I be called the Son of God? And then he says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus is not just referring here to a unity of purpose between him and the Father. Jesus' words here, listen to me now, are a statement of divine ontology. Or divine being. Jesus is speaking about his nature, his being. That he is in oneness with the Father to the point of 
eternal essence. In other words, this is an unambiguous claim to deity. He is the very same nature as the Father in a way that created beings are not. And while humanity bears the image of God, Jesus and the Father share unbreakable unity of essence. And this is why we confess that both the Father and the Son are God, while at the same time holding firmly to monotheism, the belief in and worship of one God. Christians don't worship multiple gods. The Father and Son are not different manifestations of, modes of, forms of, parts of, or revelations of God. The Father and the Son are both eternally distinct and eternally one in a way that nothing else ever can be. And this is not a New Testament innovation. Everything Jesus taught was in perfect accordance with all that the Scriptures had taught us to anticipate about the Messiah. So had these, had these religious experts truly believed the unbroken Word of God, Rather than falsely accusing Jesus, they would have recognized him as their long-awaited divine Messiah, and they would have worshipped him on the spot. Jesus' words bring us to the precipice of a vast deep. Our task is not to remove the mystery and therefore blunt the glory of it. Rather, we are to gratefully receive Jesus' self-revelation. As we take it all in, then it should turn into marvel and worship and adoration. Marvel that such a God is and that he would lavish his love upon us. Beloved, there is not nearly enough of God in our hearts. There's not nearly enough of God in our thinking and in our living. The high and great and utterly incomprehensible Almighty God, there's not enough of him in our hearts and minds. Everything in the world, everything in the world, throughout the world, everything about us in our totality is from Him and to Him and through Him and for Him. Everything true and worthy and beautiful and good comes from Him and must be given back to Him in praise lest it turn rancid and corrupted. The great 16th century poet John Donne wrote, All knowledge that begins not and ends not with God's glory is but an elaborate and exquisite ignorance. To know God in all of his triune majesty and glory is the purpose of our lives and the sum total of our hopes and desires. I can think of no greater or practical, or life-giving subject for our meditation than that. Well, Jesus slips out of their presence. Once again, I think we're invited to see, again, the good and providential hand of God here. It is not his hour yet, but it will be. So we see there in verses 40 through 42 that Jesus goes back to the Transjordan, to that desert beyond the Jordan River, that place where John the Baptist had conducted his ministry. And remember the ministry of John the Baptist. It was a ministry of preaching and baptizing. He preached repentance, 
And then he baptized, not Christian baptism, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That will not be instituted until after the resurrection of Christ. But he baptized a baptism of repentance, calling people to repent of their sins. Jesus, in an act of humility and self-giving, submitted to that even though he had nothing to repent of, but submitted to it as a way to identify with his people. And then he came and began his ministry. But there John remained, continuing to preach, continuing to call people to repentance. And now Jesus at long last returns to that same region among those same people, those same people who had been so loyal to John the Baptist. They now see Jesus return. And remember what they said there? They said, you know, John the Baptist, he didn't work any miracles, but everything he told us about this man is true. And there, we're told, many believed in him. The preaching of repentance... And now the arrival of the gospel in human flesh brought about the belief of many people. I love what the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry observes, quote, Where the preaching of repentance has had success, there the preaching of reconciliation and gospel grace is most likely to be prosperous. Where John has been acceptable, Jesus will not be unacceptable. The jubilee trumpet sounds sweetest in the ears of those who in the day of atonement have afflicted their souls for their own sins. Jesus will return to Jerusalem. And the second half of John, beginning in chapter 11, tells us the story. And this time there will be no deliverance from the hands of those who hate him. And that by God's own design. Jesus will return to Jerusalem for the express purpose of laying down his life for the sheep. He will return to Jerusalem to do the very thing that the Father sent him into the world to do. That for us and our salvation, Jesus will be nailed to a Roman cross and there he will take upon his own sinless shoulders our sin, our brokenness, our rebellious ruination. And he will bear it all away. So what's to be done? Jesus has brought us to a point of decision. Neutrality is not an option. Neutrality is an illusion, in fact. And so what's to be done? What do we do with Jesus? In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis, the one-time convinced atheist and the great Oxford literary historian, recounts a particularly significant moment which contributed to the crumbling down of his own unbelief. He was visiting with a friend of his, an Oxford philosopher uh, by the name of Thomas Weldon. And as the conversation turned to the work of an unbelieving Bible scholar named Fraser, yes, there are Bible scholars who don't believe the Bible, um, to Lewis's absolute chagrin, Weldon begins to challenge the conclusions of this unbelieving scholar. Here's how Lewis describes it, quote, early in 1926, the hardest boiled of all the atheists, he's referring to Weldon, his friend there, the hardest boiled of all the atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. And then he quotes his friend Weldon, the philosopher. Rum thing. Rum thing is a really quaint 
Britishism that means, well, this is weird. Rum thing. All that stuff of Frasers about the dying God. Rum thing. It almost looks as if it all actually happened. Lewis goes on. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has certainly never since shown any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have put it, safe, where could I turn? Was there no escape? What will you do with Jesus? In the 19th century, the great Scottish Presbyterian preacher John Duncan wrote that Jesus presents us with a trilemma. He says Jesus gives us three options. He said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he is divine. Later in the 20th century, Lewis would take that same trilemma and he would write this in his book, Mere Christianity, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And that is the choice we have today before us. Once you see him, you can never turn back. Once you behold Christ in his glory and his mercy, once you hear and conceive of the gospel, You cannot turn away unless you turn away from him completely. So what will it be? What will you do with this man, the most consequential life ever on this planet? The most consequential life to ever live. 2,000 years of testimony, of endless attacks trying to undermine and break the word about him unsuccessfully. The testimonies and witnesses of his resurrection, the evidence for it still stands today against unremitting attacks. And people on every continent, now numbering all these years later in the billions, have called him Lord and God. What will you do with him? Long my my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friend, that's the only choice that makes sense. Will you believe in him? Have you seen your chains fall off? Have you seen the dungeon flamed with light? Are you ready to rise up and follow Jesus? Believe in him, and you will be saved. Let's pray. 
Oh God, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, confirm your word in our hearts. In our unbelief, help us believe. In our doubts, give us faith. And Father, we ask that each day we would remember your good promises, your good gospel, and each day we would rise up and call you Lord and God. Amen.